0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Climate Change with Holly. On this week's episode, we have a special guest, Christian Shaw. Christian Shaw is one of the co-founders of an amazing organisation called Plastic Tides. Um, And on this week's episode, we talk about single use plastics, as well as Christian's youth mentor program that he runs, which does amazing things for young people around the globe. Um, It's a really inspiring episode, and I hope you enjoy listening. And now I'm going to leave you with the interview with Christian. Enjoy. Yeah, so um, welcome to the podcast and it's great to have you on here. Um, So first of all, I just wanted to know a bit about you. What got you interested in the environment um, and in particular trying to be plastic free?
1: Yeah, sure. So my name is Christian Shaw. I'm the executive director and one of the co-founders of Plastic Tides, uh, 501C3, a U.S. nonprofit. And our mission is to inspire and catalyze action toward a plastic-free future through adventure, education, and youth empowerment. And how we do that primarily is by combining adventure and science through stand-up paddleboard research expeditions, then also working directly with young people uh, to support them through our Global Youth Mentor Program with one-on-one mentorship to complete projects in their schools and communities that are going to impact plastic pollution, climate change, issues like that upstream with sustainable solutions. And so that's uh, that's kind of where I am now, but um, I, uh, I grew up in upstate New York and it was just Exposed to the outdoors and a lot of broad perspectives, you know, throughout my upbringing. So, you know, I I, um, I don't know how far you want to go into backstory stuff, but uh, we're you know doing sit of paddleboard expeditions, adventure, you know, kind of combining my passion for water sports and the outdoors um, that I gained through throughout my childhood.
0: Wow. Okay. So, tell us a bit about how the project got started. Like what sort of inspired you to start this project especially with you know getting young people involved.
1: yeah sure so you know young people are a really great place to start as far as i'm concerned because uh, they really motivated and open-minded and so when i first learned about the real extent of the plastic pollution issue i was in college and in, in oceanography class and i saw uh, presentation, including some slides from Five Gyres, one of the larger plastic pollution organizations. And just, they were explaining the situation, particularly in the Pacific with the Great Pacific Garbage Patch and this accumulation of plastic out there. And something, you know, I, I felt like I was, you know, a decently well-versed environmentalist at that point, you know, it was partly into my college career. And, um, you know, had been interested in sustainability for quite some time. So, you know, to learn all of a sudden that there is this whole other issue that just had not been on my radar, that was not just this, you know, plastic in the ocean, but the actual actions, everyday actions, you know, single-use plastic, water bottles, utensils, things like that, that I wasn't necessarily using or overusing, but... You know, wasn't aware of really how that impact was, you know, accumulating around the world. Um, so, so yeah, that's what really set me on the path to, you know, start doing something about the plastic pollution issue.
0: Wow, that's really inspiring to hear a bit of your background and how you began to sort of discover. You know how much plastic there is in the ocean I know when I was at uni, we did a semester just focused on sort of plastic sustainability and I learned about the great Pacific garbage patch as well, and um, yeah. I was shocked when I saw photos of just kilometers and kilometers of floating plastic
1: yeah that's that's actually interesting that that's interesting that you're able to see photos like that because um one of the things that i encountered really early on so i learned about this issue and i was kind of picturing you know this massive floating trash you know pile out there in the ocean and uh you know it's it's much more i mean i'm sure in certain areas you can kind of see an accumulation of plastic but you know from what i've heard i've never been there um most of the quote great pacific garbage patch is really an accumulation of stratified plastic throughout the water column, like a plastic smog. And so you can't even really see it from the surface. And so, um, you know, I'm sure like you-
0: It's like the tip of the iceberg, that's just what you see. And then when you go under, it's just heaps of microplastic, like microscopic things that no one can. And like, obviously there's bigger plastic that's floating on top. But yeah, I agree from what I heard, most of the problem is underneath.
1: Yeah that's a good analogy tip of the iceberg for sure um, because I do think that's what it's like and um, yeah at the very beginning of, of Plastic Tides I uh, had the opportunity to attend a National Geographic Young Explorers grant workshop at my university and I pitched an idea to a breakout session uh, to actually kiteboard across the Great Pacific Garbage Patch and get aerial footage you know strap on with a hazmat suit or something and go bouncing across this trash and get these stunning aerial photos to you know bring a ton of global attention to the issue and uh, you know that what started out as that kiteboarding across the great pacific garbage patch was distilled into a a 10-day self-supported stand-up paddleboard expedition around the island of Bermuda researching ocean plastics and filming for an educational web series Uh, but it was an interesting process going from you know okay we're going to go to the pacific you know and get uh, you know a helicopter a drone i mean drones weren't even really that much on the radar at that point like we're going to get a helicopter and and get some aerial footage kiteboarding across this thing and you know it'll be shocking and then, you know, okay, well, how, how do you get to the middle of the Pacific? And uh, how do you, <laughs> oh, but oh, look, it actually, you can't even really see the thing. So then we ended up, you know, in the Atlantic, going around Bermuda, which is near the North Atlantic garbage patch, but also a lot of non endemic trash out there in the water and on the beaches. So, a really good place to study.
0: Okay. Um, I also wanted to know a bit about how you have found trying to live plastic-free. Like what have been some of the challenges that you've faced when trying to remove plastic from your life?
1: Well, the biggest challenge for me at this point is just getting like served plastic unintentionally when it's it's a situation where it's hard to give it back because, you know, it's just going to get immediately thrown away or something. So, you know, I think I've been, I've been at this for quite a while. So all the basic stuff, you know, carrying my utensil kit, my bottle, my coffee mug, you know, just like your standard, yeah. what I would consider tools for daily life. And what I would hope other people should consider considering. Yeah. <laughs> like I,
0: Yeah, I definitely have a backpack with everything I could need in it. I have like a spare shopping bag. I have a fork. I have like a little kiwi knife. What else do I have? my water bottles always in there, Um, just like anything I can do to avoid plastic. But I do agree with you, you go somewhere and they'll just give you a plastic fork or, you know, um, they'll put a plastic straw in your reusable drink or something. So I've found I always have to just be like, could I get, you know, a roll with no plastic bag? Thanks. Or can I just have no plastic? Because otherwise people just give it to you with any chance they can.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you're so right about the the preemptive approach. And I I think that's that's sort of balance uh, when you know, once you're kind of a pro with your backpack and all your stuff, then it, it does come down to kind of finding that sweet spot where you can, you know, say something a little ahead of time because you've got that, you know, spider sense that you see the plastic coming at you <laughs> yeah, and you, you can intercept them. it.
0: Yeah. You see them get the plastic bag and they begin to put it in and you're like, no, no, no plastic bag. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it's tough. I just was getting a coffee the other morning and I just, you know, just down the street from our office, and I just walked over there and I, I usually make my own different morning beverages, but I was, I just got a coffee, like a decaf. And I was like, Hey, can I, you know, no top please. And of course I just look over and I see the girl putting the top on it. And I was like, Oh no, like please no top. And then she, and then she dropped it on the ground and I was like, Oh, no,
0: too It's going in the
1: bin. At that point, I might as well. I might as well use the top. You know, like I'm still gonna have to not spill this thing. <laughs> but yeah, it's you know.
0: Or even I went to get sushi the other day and they gave me like five of those little sushi things. So I put like four of them back and just kept the one I used in there. It was just like at a sushi bar and it was just like sitting on the counter and I was like, here, take this for the next person. I don't know if they did, but hopefully because it's like in a packet, then they can just re-give it to someone else. But I always wonder what happens with like plastic that just sort of, yeah, when you, when, when you go out anywhere, people just want to give you plastic and it's, that's why it's so hard to be plastic free.
1: Yeah, it is. And I think, you know, being, but making those little, you know, those little individual um, moments of, of saying something politely and so on, that does go a long way because that, you know, influences people subtly that you're interacting with, especially if you're nice and polite about it. Um, and then they're like, Oh, wow, interesting. That person didn't want a top. Hmm. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah.
0: And, um, Um, what about shopping? How do you get things like milk or, you know, things like that? Just basics. Do you go to bulk food stores or your local markets for shopping or do you just depend? Yes.
1: So that depends. There's kind of a combination of things that we do. Um, and and it is, you know, there are some catch 22s there as well. I just do want to bounce back to the utensil thing though one one oh, real yeah, quickly because I had something I wanted to add, because you're talking we're talking about, you know, these utensils and how they're out there. And uh and I guess in the in the you know era of COVID and whatever, there's been probably more individual packaging of utensils, but for the longest time, right? you go to like a mall food court or you go somewhere and there's just an open thing of you know here's some forks, here's some knives, here's some spoons and and so somehow back then and i think it still happens to this day you know people i mean well you tell me do you think those are those utensils are clean
0: Probably. you know
1: or san- sanitary quote, no, sanitary
0: they never get cleaned they're just manufactured and then put in the food court and no one has ever cleaned any plastic utensil ever so i don't know how long they've been there and probably yeah they're not very hygienic like how
1: many people's hands have reached in to grab one <laughs>
0: that's the other thing i don't understand why people think plastic is more hygienic when if you look at it it is not actually like there's no proof of that because no one ever washes single-use plastics ever it's just designed to be like made in a factory used once and then thrown away like I don't get how that's
1: a great point you know that actually in the context of that any sort of metal or other utensil someone's probably washed it before giving it to you whereas the plastic utensil it might even it might even be in a sealed plastic bag but that doesn't mean that the person in the factory that made it didn't handle it and then seal it into that plastic bag or that it didn't come in contact with you know rat you know feces and anyway i don't want to go too far yeah. but <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> there's, uh, there's
0: just all these common misconceptions like oh if i give you this fork that's plastic it's going to be cleaner than this metal fork that i washed five minutes ago Um, but also talking on like reusable coffee cups and utensils and things. Um, During COVID, I remember my boyfriend and I, we were struggling to find somewhere that would take our coffee cup, like our reusable one. And everyone was like, oh, we can't take that COVID. And then we finally went to this coffee store and the guy's like, oh, sure. And then he just, like use the reusable one and he was like fine with it because obviously he understood that it wasn't that big a risk and like we were pretty safe at that point in Australia like there's not much COVID here so I feel like in a way like we were talking about like reusable doesn't mean it's contaminated or dirty because there was the whole argument about oh I could get COVID from your coffee cup but if you If you do it properly, you clean your hands afterwards or whatever, like you touch the cup, then it's just as safe. And let's be honest, I doubt many people got COVID from touching a coffee cup, putting coffee in and handing it back, like it would be pretty unlikely.
1: I mean, people would have been getting a lot of other diseases prior to, you know, COVID through that form of transmission if it were so effective for, you know, just basic things like flus and colds and stuff too so i agree the hundred percent i think yeah what's what's hygienic is uh considered hygienic or sanitary is an interesting sort of spectrum based on you know and, and yeah and, and it does it does play into the plastics industry and i think it's it's might be subtly supported by the plastics industry in in ways the you know the idea that anything Reused or washed is somehow unsafe.
0: Yeah, and I do also just want to touch upon the fact that The plastic industry is actually funded by fossil fuel industry So the whole idea of plastic was when they started mining for fossil fuels They had this byproduct and they're like, oh, what can we do with this? It was like a sort of oil and then they created plastic and they're like great we can get rid of all this byproduct from our fossil fuels this is a great idea so plastic is actually just made from fossil fuel byproduct
1: yeah absolutely yeah that's that's a really great thing to to point out and i think that's it's something that in the context of you know industrial scale pollution and sort of forces at play you know, like you said, big oil is essentially big plastic. They're one and the same and all the big chemical companies are pretty much the same thing as well. Cause they're petrochemicals. And then if you look at any sort of industrial scale agriculture, well, you might as well throw that into the same basket because it's, you know, like a monoculture corn or soy field here in the you know, United States Would be have almost no life in the soil, you know, basically a dead substrate that is just has petrochemical fertilizers and pesticides and whatever being applied to it. And then you're getting plants that are growing. But if you look at the inputs, you know, they're pretty much all chemical inputs. And so even your soy plant is kind of coming from oil, really in a sense, which is
0: yeah. um, kind of interesting. I also wanted to know a bit about your 150-mile expedition down the, the Mississippi River to try and oppose the construction of, a, of the plastic plant. Um, what motivated <laughs> you to do this?
1: So this, this plant that is still trying to be built um, they're now in another environmental review. Big victory this this uh, end of the summer, though, um, where they paused everything for a full environmental review. Um, this this potential plant is really at the crux of the plastic pollution issue globally, I believe, because it would be the largest facility of its kind in the world uh, if it were built and it would be doubling the toxic air pollution in the surrounding area, which is already suffering from really high levels of air pollution a region known as Cancer Alley along the Mississippi River, between Baton Rouge and New Orleans. And this is also at the intersection of environmental racism and air quality, of course, and plastic pollution because it's primarily communities of color that are affected by this air pollution have very little say in the construction or permitting of these plants, you know, that are basically toxifying the air around them and, and literally killing people um, already from different cancers and diseases in these areas. So I learned about this this issue and felt like it was a really unique opportunity to apply, you know, our blend of activism through adventure um, by getting out there on the Mississippi and paddling from the proposed site of the plant to the end of the, of the river, 150 miles. And along the way, I took samples, uh, actually researching nurdles, which are plastic pellets, pre-production plastic pellets, that end up along the banks of the river from all of the industry that's already there. And so this plant, if it were built, would be emitting 10,000 little plastic beads into the river every minute, every single minute. So, you know, you can do the math multiplying that up, but uh, essentially because of the way that these little plastic pellets are treated... Uh, they're not very well regulated, and these companies are permitted to discharge them with their toxic effluent that they're dumping into the river. And there's no real stringent reporting either or tracking, so it's all based on the company self-reporting and saying, you know, we think we emitted uh, zero noodles, even though they're dumping thousands and thousands of them into the river. And so places that are hard to get to along the riverbanks because of all the private property and different industrial facilities and so on. And so it was really a combination of things to support a coalition led by the Center for Biological Diversity called Stop Formosa Plastics, but most importantly, Rise St. James, uh, right in St. James Parish, which is where the new plant would be built, uh, and the Louisiana Bucket Brigade and Healthy Golf are all really important organizations uh, that came together to oppose this facility. And so, yeah, that's that's what brought me out there.
0: <laughs> wow! And um, in that email um, that Josh sent me, I think he mentioned that the actual project has been suspended now. So. Is that a positive outcome for you or it's still unsure as to whether or not it will be built?
1: Yeah, I mean, so far so good. It's an absolutely a positive outcome. Um, it's been suspended for full environmental review. Uh, however, I think there's we can't let off on the pressure to keep you know, making sure that this plant and other plants like it don't get built. And also that we start to stem the flow of these nurdles from other existing facilities actually into the waterways um, because it's it's one of those sort of unseen pollutants that has a lot of negative effects in the ecosystem you know they soak up toxins from the surrounding area and then can aggregate them into different wildlife or other areas so um,
0: yeah yeah so that's really inspiring that you managed to um suspend the uh like the completion or even the beginning of this project which is great because of all the positive environmental effects that not having this will have um i guess i wanted to know um what are some of the long-term systemic changes that you're trying to achieve through your project like what would be the ideal sort of outcome in society or not in just in society but in the future for like creating more plastic free communities and encouraging that sort of lifestyle.
1: So in what context exactly are because so within the within the structure of plastic tides as a nonprofit or
0: I guess both. So within like your organization but also like in an ideal world what would the future look like for you
1: okay well that's okay so okay that was unclear whether we were looking at what plastic tides is trying to do or what i would like to see which are two different things i guess but you know for me i think that in the future like just just envisioning a positive future for you know plastics um really decoupling society from fossil fuels somehow and you know just seeing a much wider scale adoption of of things made from natural materials and i think it's really important to think about things from a multi-generational time scale perspective and and i actually think that in a lot of ways we need to do some like um what's the word not de-evolution but
0: like sort of going back to how people were before plastic like maybe
1: yeah exactly you got it exactly and looking at you know for instance okay a windmill is a good example because right now wind energy is one of the resources that we have to try and transition away from fossil fuels but I really have learned to, you know, through the teachings of indigenous peoples and so forth, you know, look at things from a longer perspective and say, okay, well, if this is a solution, what happens when you multiply that solution times, you know, whatever the life cycle of that thing is, time, you know, by 10 or, you know, 100 or, you know, so, if you have a windmill for instance that's a really great solution but how long does that windmill last for and what resources materials need to go into that and which of those materials are non-renewable so for instance a lot of these massive windmill blades are getting landfilled in places like Montana because they're made of interesting really strong sort of composite Um, vinyl ester sort of like fiberglass plastic blends which are really difficult to recycle and so no one wants to recycle them and they're you know because of the way the materials are intertwined and so you know the life cycle of these blades I'm not actually positive on this but I don't believe it's longer than 30 years I think it might be closer to something like 15 or 20 years and so okay great we can create "Quote clean energy but where are those blades being built what's the footprint of that factory and all those chemicals and whatever volatile compounds and emissions from that and you know you gotta like look all the way back to the beginning of the thing and then and think okay how many times like what happens if you do make those blades for you know 10 cycles of that that's you know 20 say it's 20 years times 10 200 years you know like you know that's not really that long in the context of yeah um yeah so like thinking of things like that so there's that's something where you could look at you know a different thing like growing for instance a sustainable forest that you're harvesting you know in a Manageable way, and you're building windmills old school style, like the Dutch, out of wood, you know. And maybe they're not as big, and you don't get as much power from them, but yeah, you have a system where you can do it, you could conceivably do it for a very long time.
0: Yeah, I just on that note, I just want to also point out another frustration I have with like society at the moment is this idea that you have to throw things out, you can't repair them. Um, and I just want to give an example, my phone battery, it's not working, so I bought a new one and it's so hard just to find somewhere that will repair a phone battery. So. I think I'm just gonna have to do it myself with some tools but just even things like fridges or you know dishwashers or anything that you have a lot of the time if you try get them repaired someone will come and go oh no it's too hard to repair just buy a new one when if you repaired it it could probably last hundreds of years longer so it's just seems ridiculous. <laughs>
1: That, that's a really great point and and we don't have to look really that far back into our past you know just the fifties and sixties sort of the you know when these sort of appliance complex appliances first started coming out and they were built well and built to be repaired and now you know they you go into an appliance place and it's it's every time you go to shop for something the lifespan is getting shorter you know oh now they only last for two to three years or whatever and they used to last three to five and time before that it was five to seven
0: Exactly. and my grandma has a microwave she bought 50 years ago and it's still working so I don't know why it's just like five years now and you throw it out when she has one 50 years old that's still in her kitchen and it's still working so it just goes to prove that there are more efficient and sustainable ways that you can build things so that they don't have to end up in landfill in the first place.
1: Yeah, there there absolutely are. And I think that, you know, that your frustration with society is really good. And it, it's it's really tough because it's not just society as in people making choices. Of course, people sort of with their... maybe lack of insight support things that they don't necessarily understand, you know? So in that sense, they're certainly culpable for not being more educated, perhaps. But, you know, for instance, with appliances and things, there's really significant pressures on the economic side, the business side, to, to do that. And so that's why, I mean, it's not because we've gotten less smart at building things that the amount of time things last has gotten less and less. I mean, there's just no way it's because, you know, for, for financial reasons, companies have started to design things, you know, planned obsolescence in different ways. And so that's where it gets really tricky as to how do you address that? Because, you know, it's not really a fair match when you're talking about companies that are designing things and consumers who are just trying to, you know, figure their way through the the landscape of, of products and you know only have what's really available to them. So yeah, it's it's an interesting dilemma.
0: Yeah, for sure. So I guess we were talking about planned obsolescence and how it is frustrating nowadays that you can't buy anything that will last like longer than a lifetime.
1: Yeah, longer than a lifetime. That is a, that's a great, a great benchmark, actually, a lifetime. Um, and and kind of reminds me of a really interesting example of sort of what we can achieve and also maybe some of the uh, malevolence or, or mischievousness that's gone on behind the scenes with regard to planned obsolescence. So when it comes to light bulbs, actually, the light bulb was invented back in the 1800s and there's a light bulb that was made i believe it was back then in the 1800s that has been on still on and the filament is still just working just fine because it was a really thick heavy filament and so uh engineers and industrial designers basically worked with light bulbs for decades generations essentially working on fine-tuning like less and less lifetime into them basically (laughs) (laughs) so um you know there's definitely looking backward can be looking forward at the same time in a lot of ways
0: yeah for sure um, and I just wanted to get back to your Plastic Tides project. Um, so what positive changes have you seen come from the Plastic Tides project since you've started?
1: Oh, I mean, it's been... We started back in 2014 officially, although we 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 attended, for instance, the National Geographic Conference in 2012. So we've been at this for almost 10 years now and we've seen a lot of changes. We were really heavily involved with the, with the microbead issue back in 2014, 15, 16, well wrapped up in 15 um, with the big microbead ban, at least in the US in 15 and then a bunch of other places followed suit around the world. Uh, so we did a big expedition, actually a series of expeditions in upstate New York uh, researching plastic microbeads on inland waterways and uh, proving their existence in inland waterways, lakes, and rivers for the first time uh, with uh, a special device that we were pulling behind our paddle boards to sample the surface water. So, you know, we've seen some changes on that front. And of course, in the time that we've been been around, we've seen the um, the advent of, you know, uh, planet or plastic and the whole BBC and Sky News focus on plastic pollution as a, a topic for the year. Uh, yeah,
0: for sure. Wow. And
1: and you know, so and we've seen, I mean, hundreds of new organizations join the plastic pollution space. And and honestly, really, in the time that I've been aware of, you know, the scope of this issue, it's gone from something obscure that no one really knew about to almost dinner table conversation in a lot of places. So, you know, we've, we've come quite a ways.
0: Yeah. And I guess linked to plastic, of course, is recycling. Um, I know that recycling properly can help stop a lot of plastics ending up in landfill. I know when I lived in Germany, they recycle soft plastics. um, And separately, they have like, A different compartment for glass bottles. They have hard plastics, they have paper and cardboard. Do you think recycling properly is like a solution or we should be focusing more on just stopping it from even existing in the first place?
1: I think we should just be stopping it from the source to begin with because recycling although phenomenal processes really best suited to materials like glass and metal. And so recycling was developed around the, you know, the world war two era and beyond. And, you know, what happened if you look back and there's been some really good coverage by NPR and others, uh, on this, um, just looking looking back at uh, the history of plastics recycling and how it really was something that was sold, well, really bought, sold, and paid for by the plastics industry. So, um, you know, they put a lot of money into establishing plastics recycling infrastructure and basically co-opting the good habits that people had developed for separating and recycling metal and glass into plastic Mm. and so yeah you know so recycling is great for the right materials
0: yeah and i think the other myth with recycling is that most plastic never gets recycled it's less than 15 percent of plastic can even be recycled if that and it also just like from what i've heard most plastic doesn't they don't have facilities to be able to recycle it and i know in australia it's really bad we don't even have facilities to recycle glass so a lot of our glass is just sitting in warehouses
1: (laughs) oh wow that's 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 unfortunate that there's not even glass recycling facilities i wasn't aware of that That's, that's, that's interesting. But yeah, you know, like you said, glass, you know, plastic is, it's one of those things that's hard to recycle. So, um, you know, it's just not really effective because every time you recycle it, the material quality gets less, it breaks down, it breaks down, it breaks down. And so you always have to be putting new plastic in, which is actually really so great for the plastics industry, because, if you take a milk carton, for instance, and you want to make three new milk cartons, or I should say, if you want to recycle one milk carton, you have to make three new milk cartons because you can't just take an old milk carton and make a new milk carton. The plastic isn't the right quality. It doesn't have the right characteristics to do so after it's already been used and then melted down, and heated up again. So it's, uh, it's interesting. and
0: That is interesting. Why don't they sell milk in glass bottles? anymore
1: if they sell wine and glass bottles and well so it's yeah it's interesting because you had asked me earlier about you know certain things personally grocery wise and so on and milk i don't really drink a lot of actual milk um but we do um so uh, the person that we get all of our sort of animal products from ideally has a ranch uh, a farm called deep roots ranch Uh, nearby to where we live and you know it's all regenerative grazing and so we get meat and other things eggs and some you know milk and cream and butter and kind of stuff um, from our friend Jean and you know always get in glass from her you know so that's great and that's the old school way but
0: I think they need to, I think they need to bring back the milkman. The milkman needs to make a comeback.
1: <laughs> I know. I think I I agree. I think so too. And I think in this modern era, it could it could stick. The right the right city, the right model, or Even, whatever. You know,
0: get some soybean farmers, the soybean milkman, or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um.
0: What else was I gonna say? um i guess i just also wanted to know about your youth mentor program like could you tell me a bit about that
1: yeah sure i'd love to so the global youth mentor program was developed through a number of years of experience we had working with young people in various capacities to help them achieve success in projects in their schools and communities things like addressing plastic utensils or getting an orchard planted Um, or looking at the you know water quality in their school getting their water tested and making sure that students have access to clean drinking water and refill infrastructure and bottles and so on and so forth so all these different types of projects that students undertake and we recognize that there was a, a really good opportunity you know through like I said working with these students in various capacities over the years to bring that all together into a cohesive program and offering for young people around the world. And so that is the Global Youth Mentor Program. And we provide one-on-one mentorship for these youth leaders, uh, middle and high school students uh, through a volunteer program with our mentors. So all of our mentors are volunteers that commit five to 10 hours a week to work with these students in a one-on-one capacity. to help them achieve, achieve project success. So we're in our second year of the program now, just launched our second cohort of students and really excited to see what they're gonna do. We had 10 students finish last year's program with some really inspiring outcomes. Uh, one of our students won uh, a Youth uh, Environmentalism Award, student down in Peru, and um, everyone's really done great work. So it's one of those things where, um, yeah, we're just excited to, to see where, what's coming next.
0: Wow. That's amazing. So is it a global project and um, can our listeners get involved?
1: It is absolutely. Yeah. So it's a global project and, and that's really important to the program uh, providing that cross-cultural perspective and input um, to really, you know, help, achieve a broad diversity of of ideas and and perspectives uh to address these issues so the students work with mentors based on their time zone and typically their hemisphere as well uh, just because of the way the school years are oriented Um, but we can have students from different countries you know students and mentors i should say from different countries working together which provides for a really fun uh dynamic
0: oh wow so um how how do you find mentors or like who who sort of mentors this program is it just you or is there a team of mentors
1: yeah so there, the mentors are all volunteers and so we just support the mentors and to be a mentor you, you don't really need any particular expert hours a week to the program for the course of the cohort so you know that's about a year a year's time so it's just it's really geared towards people professionals young adults who uh want to give back and you know have the time to commit consistently to working with with these students and it's, it's a one-to-one or one-to-two model. So, um, you know, pretty intimate interaction in terms of the support that the students are getting. And when we first started out, we thought that it was gonna be compatible to have, you know, maybe four or five students working with one mentor at a time. But it's it's turned out that the students really are benefiting a lot more from that, much more focused hands-on support. So. Um, you know, we're we're leading into that, and
0: uh, yeah, yeah. So, what sort of things um, do you learn in the program? I don't know if you mentioned it before, but maybe just like a brief summary of what what's like what a student would learn. Oh.
1: Yeah. So the the students, it depends really on what the students are interested in, what they're focused on with their projects. So um, there are some basic sort of onboarding and just general knowledge things that we provide for the students you know with regard to the resources that we have within the program however uh, this is really a youth-led program and that's one of the things that differentiates this you know the gym program from a lot of other programs out there is that it's really about the students being in the driver's seat you know hence the term youth leaders and so they're deciding what project they want to undertake and, and you know, going through those steps and just looking to their mentor for support when they run into issues or so on and so forth. So we do have project models, like some of the ones I mentioned earlier that have been completed before by students. And so provide a really nice sort of roadmap or framework for them to follow. And so when students come into the program, uh, they can work with their mentor to look at the different project models that we have and look at their school, their community and see, you know, if one of those is applicable and they want to start looking at, you know, solving one of those issues, you know, with those resources or a number of the students come to us with a completely unique, independent project and they just want to be supported through that. And so um, that's the other, other side of things. And that's probably about half of the students um, are just really doing their own thing and, and just want you know the support that uh, doesn't come with any strings attached.
0: Oh, wow. That's amazing. So I guess the youth is the future. So it's really encouraging to see Um, you know young people just trying to tackle these challenges that we've sort of been born into like with plastic I never had a chance to grow up without plastic in my life but talking to my grandma she talks about how when she was a kid plastic didn't exist yet and just you know things were a lot more simple you just took your milk bottles or if you got even just back then if you got a bottle of soft drink you took it back where you bought it and they would sterilize it and fill it up again with like more soft drink. so it was just like a simple way of recycling where it was just sterilizing glass bottles over and over until they could no longer be used so it sort of gives me ideas of what we could do in the future like if we could do those sorts of things it would be a positive impact on the environment?
1: Yeah, it really would be. And, and for me, what it comes down to in a lot of ways is just what people are willing to be informed about and how what people are willing to spend their money um, based on their values and their beliefs. And I like to say, vote with your dollars for a future that you believe in. And that you want to live in because as much as we have our nonprofit organizations and we have our political processes and so on and so forth it's really challenging to affect change outside of just this basic economic forces that exist and in, in the broader society with you know consumer driven uh you know um society basically yeah. and so you know
0: i guess i also wanted to touch on that like do you think that these big companies that are producing all the plastic are they more responsible um for this problem or are we as individuals do we have the power to make a difference as well i yeah
1: so i would say that they're responsible but we have the power to make a difference. So kind of yes and yes, because (laughs) at the end of the day, they know what they're doing and they've been doing it for a long time to make a profit. And it's not necessarily any one person, but the structure of a corporation, that's not a public benefit corporation that has other externalities and things that it can legally take into account. A standard corporation is really a mindless uh just juggernaut with you know no real control over it besides people that are caught up in the momentum of that entity so you know even you know any large corporation that has board of directors executives and then employees beyond that they're all driven by for one, the legal directive to make money for the shareholders. And then two, the social, political, and sort of interpersonal, uh, you know, influences and motivations and forces that exist, you know, in the context of that, that type of, a, of framework. So, you know, and I think a lot of people don't realize that without, you know, something baked into the actual way that it's organized that accounts for, social and environmental good that a corporate entity is really just a mindless money-making machine and it doesn't care about anything else and it doesn't care if the if people live on the planet in 100 years or 50 years or or anything and so yeah so as a consumer you know it's important for us to be educated about these realities and understand that when we spend our money we are making we're casting our ballot every single time we buy a stick of butter or a pop we're telling that company make more of this thing yeah it's that simple
0: i yeah and i guess on that note i wanted to ask since plastic has become like since people have become more aware of plastic as a problem in society have you noticed a shift in people like thinking "Hmm, maybe i will you know drink my coffee at the cafe in a in a you know reusable cup or have you seen like in your day-to-day life positive changes in your local community
1: absolutely yeah i mean i live fortunately in a pretty switched on progressive community here in santa cruz but nonetheless, you know, around the country and the world, I've seen a shift just since I've been doing this in people and, in their awareness and their capacity or um, motivation to take, you know, additional steps. And I think one of the most effective ways to create positive change like this is, is to make it fun and, and cool and hip and, and be something that people want to be a part of, uh, that's the, the number one easiest way, I think, for us to achieve a lot of these goals around uh, a more cleaner future.
0: And speaking of big companies as well, and, you know, more people are trying to be sustainable, I saw on your Instagram page, you mentioned greenwashing. Um, what is greenwashing and how can people sort of look out for this sort of tactics by companies?
1: Greenwashing comes in all shapes and sizes and forms and is pretty much every way that a company can polish their image by investing small amounts of money into things that look and sound like they're helping fix the environment or creating things that are cleaner and better. And, and it's not always that there's progress not being made, but you know, if, if you see a company claiming progress, then there's probably a lot of bad stuff that's happening that they're not talking about. Okay. And, um, and so, you know, I think, greenwashing is one of those things like we've got some good instagram videos that have specific examples uh i can give one are you familiar with walmart the the corporation
0: the big american
1: yeah the big american company so uh are you familiar with the term regenerative
0: uh like sort of maybe just or the or
1: the or the concept of regeneration versus sustainability and the idea of like you know, sustaining being sort of not making anything worse, but keeping things the same and regeneration being the idea that, you know, human intelligence can be used not only to destroy the natural world, but can actually use to enhance and improve and repair the natural world through different practices. Um, and so, you know, actually, for instance, I was listening to one of your episodes about bush regeneration, and I really liked where you were pointing out uh, that planting is actually not always the best thing to do. Because by the very nature of us planting, we are in, we're in—we're introducing some sort of organization into a natural system, which has its own way of organizing itself. Um, so I think... You know, so, but, you know, that differentiation basically between, you know, allowing places to become better than, um, you know, versus just sort of keeping things the same for the future
0: i guess the point of that also was i was saying it's better just not to destroy something in the first place than to destroy it and then say oh but we'll plant some trees and you know it will be fine it will be back to normal but you've lost what what diversity or what beauty was already there and then you're just saying oh but it's fine we can fix it with you know a 100 trees or something so yeah it is about just like encouraging natural regeneration to happen rather than humans stepping in and saying oh but we can you know do it better or we can do our own regen like afterwards
1: yeah and because because even like a forest there's a difference between a plot of trees and a forest a huge difference and I think those two words get co-op you know interchanged you know that would be one way that you see greenwashing for sure because a forest is this really complex archaic ecosystem and almost an organism in and of itself and you know a few rows of trees even if you have a few species in a mix is not the same thing in any way um and so you know but basically going back to my greenwashing example i just heard so re regenerate the word regenerative has been sort of on the rise in the commercial space with sort of green quote, you know, like greener type, sustainable leaning companies. Um, And there are a lot of people and companies doing truly uh, amazing things, you know, under the moniker regenerative and, you know, for instance, just looking to Patagonia with the regenerative organic certification. So, looking at going beyond organic because organic as most people understand is has a lot of it's a it's a great stepping stone but it also leaves a lot of room for you know still rather ecologically unhealthy practices so
0: and it's very vague as well like no one really knows what it means
1: yeah exactly and it depends on what certificate which organization and you know all these things so for instance patagonia is looking at regenerative organic as a way to go beyond that organic certification and be looking at you know what's actually happening with the land and and things in a deeper level
0: and actually on that point i do want to mention that the most sustainable thing, you or not sustainable, but the most environmental thing you could probably do is not buy things you don't need in the first place. Like, it's all good and well to buy, you know, a, 10 pairs of, like, friendly, eco-friendly jeans or whatever. But if you only need one pair of jeans, just buy one pair of jeans. Or, you know, if you if you don't need things, maybe just consider not buying unnecessary things
1: yeah that's so important just looking at our impact and our needs versus wants and and being a little bit stricter perhaps with that delineation and uh and yeah like yeah. not that's buying
0: difficult in society because everywhere you go there's advertising there's shops telling you to buy all these things that they they convince you that you'll need you know all these new clothes to make you look better or you need you know all these new I don't know makeups or whatever so you can feel better about how you look but in the end like I guess for me this is more a personal experience but I've never really listened to society telling me what I need to do I I know who I am and what makes me happy and that's being just like just living with as, as little as I can as well.
1: Yeah. And that's, I think that's so insightful and it's something that I, I agree with you a hundred percent. I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, if someone asks you, what's the most sustainable thing you can do right now, or like, if you could do one thing to help the planet right now, like what would that thing be? And it might just be do nothing. Just be, just breathe air and drink water. (laughs) And, and don't try, do anything.
0: Yeah, try to grow your own plants if you can.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, but there's like, but there's so many things that actually fall under the category of, quote, doing nothing as in like, yeah. not having any impact. That's just you okay. and, you know, or you and other people even, you know, just engaging with the earth and in. in uh...
0: And the other thing that I found a bit, wow, well, it was interesting for me is, on a lot of um, like minimalistic or like environmentally friendly Instagram pages, or it's more minimalism. They say like, just throw everything out that like you don't want and then buy new better minimalistic things like throw out all your plastic containers and buy glass ones. And I'm like, wouldn't you just keep using your reusable plastic containers until like the end of their lifetime and then, maybe consider switching to a more sustainable option. Like I have a lunchbox in in my cupboard that's like 15 years old and it's made out of recycled plastic or like a percentage of it. And I'm not just going to throw it out and buy a glass one just for the sake of like being more environmental because that's just seems ridiculous. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, abso- absolutely. And that's, I think that speaks to sort of the nuance of the conundrum that we have in society around so many things because everything gets commercialized and so even being a minimalist can become really anti-minimalist if you really dig a little deeper and look at it so uh yeah i think that's a great point and i yeah i think um that's the kind of perspective we need to be applying to just yeah everyday life you know
0: yeah and I guess another thing I would like to mention is shopping secondhand, or maybe like just reusing things from other people. Is that something you have taken on board? To
1: oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah. All of the best things we have come from the thrift store, from a friend, or you know, like yeah, I'm. I I rarely. I, I haven't actually bought a new piece of clothing in as long as I can really remember. I mean, I've been gifted things. Don't get me wrong, but yeah.
0: I go shopping at the thrift store and store and I don't even really buy clothes. Maybe once every two or three years I'll buy one new piece of clothing, but I just have a lot of clothes, so I don't need any more right now yeah
1: it, it is it's kind of funny I I you know I'm I just turned 30 and growing up you're so used to growing and needing new clothes and growing and needing new clothes and I got hands from friends and I was actually the oldest of all my siblings and cousins so I didn't really get many hand-me-downs there but until my younger cousins got bigger than me <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah the <laughs> But it is funny how, like, you go through that stage and then all of a sudden, at least for me, pretty much became the same size for, you know, a long time. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow, I've had this T-shirt for 12 years.
0: Yeah, and, and, uh, I've had uh, shirts for so long, usually I wear my clothes until they're like falling apart. And even then, I'm like, should I use it as a rag? Or should I just throw it in the bin? Or I don't know, there's some places you can recycle <laughs> clothes, but I'm like, should I take it to because there's a place in Australia where it's like a thrift shop. But if you give them like old rags, they'll like somehow use it in some machine and make it into just like, some some sort of like cloth that can be used
1: oh yeah there's totally stuff that you that can do that where they take and do a sort of recycled um fibers yeah from cotton and yeah. I, mean, I like to wear a lot of cotton and wool and natural fibers as much yeah. as possible
0: i try yeah cotton, th- cotton if i can or just something that is natural
1: just, yeah, because that that yeah. stuff can be broken down and respun.
0: Yeah, I,
1: be- I believe. Yeah, so that's you know, it's it's funny though. <laughs> I I can uh, I can definitely relate to the whole the whole. Is this do I do I just do I keep another rag or do I throw this away? <laughs> but, like, oh, many
0: rags on. I've got five already, and I never. Really have... <laughs> yeah, it's it's
1: tough. <laughs> I know it's it's always and I'm like, but but then but I might. All of a sudden need a lot of rags and then I'm going to be like, oh. <laughs>
0: yeah, but it is interesting just when you do become aware of like, you know, the throwaway society and you just begin to question like, how do I throw this away? Like, even I spend a lot of time like Googling, like, can this be recycled? Or like, what bin do I put this in? Or like, sort of things like that. Yeah. I don't want to buy the waste in the first place but then when I end up with it I'm always like oh no they gave me this rubbish do I put it in the bin I don't want to contribute to the plastic problem and I'm always <laughs> just like pondering ways of how like I can be more sustainable or even how society as a whole can shift to Like, as we said, we were talking about before, like when people give you plastic and then you feel guilty, you're like staring at it. You're like, oh, no, this spoon's going to be put in the bin and it's going to take thousands of years to decompose. (laughs) But then you have to put it in perspective because it's not really like my, as an individual, it's not my fault this spoon was created. But you still feel a sense of guilt about just the amount of plastic out there, at least for me.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think, I think the most important thing or one of the most important things to remember in this whole thing is that it doesn't have to be a choice between a good quality of life and sort of a a modern lifestyle and being sustainable and being mindful and intentional as a consumer. You know, those two things can coincide and and live harmoniously and can really be a lot of fun and a really, you know, rich and fulfilling way to live, you know, intentionally uh, and, you know, living more simply perhaps, but
0: yeah.
1: finding a lot of joy in, in all of that.
0: Yeah. I guess also for me, I do feel sometimes, guilt about sort of what humans have done to the planet I just sort of want to know if you've ever felt that and like do you have sort of ways that you can cope with like trying to remain positive about like the future and yeah just do you see like the positive in the day-to-day I guess
1: yeah, I do. I do. I spend a lot of time in the ocean, which is really inspiring and provides a really good source of, in, you know, hope and, and motivation. Um, but I think it's, I mean, it, it can be really challenging or, you know, saddening to, to look at certain things. And, you know, if you're someone who, I, you know, I think it's like the question that you're asking really is if you decide to sort of let the pain of the earth into your, you know, your awareness, like then what do you do with that? You know? And I think it's, it's because it is in very much, in very many ways, I think sort of a, a black and white type of thing where people who are really yeah, you know, attenuated to the, you know, sort of what's, what's going on and how we're treating the planet. Um, You know, once you understand that, you can't really go back, you know, and not, yeah, uh, not know.
0: But I do, (laughs) yeah, I do agree with you, like, we do need to be positive, because if we think positively, and we think these are the solutions, and we are gonna, like, achieve, you know, even just reducing the amount of plastic by half in you know 10 years or whatever at least we're making right steps if we just sit here and go oh no like look at the environment like look how bad it is then you can fall into like this sort of like a pattern where you just think oh there's nothing I can do but if you think I can make a difference and if everyone thinks like that then there will be change so I think it is very important that we do try to remain positive about this situation and then we can find solutions
1: yeah i i I agree and it's it's really the only way to to i think go through life or approach any any problem but specifically you know the environmental crisis and you know because at the end of the day like i mean i'm here to try and enjoy life and you know have some fun Mm -hmm. along the way and you know, protect the places that I like to enjoy, and um, I think, yeah, you know, the more that you can share that with other people, the more they're going to want to be interested.
0: Yeah, I think that the reason why we are so positive is because we can see just the amazing beauty that's out there in the environment. Like, whenever you leave your front door, you, you see you see the earth you see what beauty it has to offer us and for me that that is enough reason to be positive like the earth has so much to give us so we should just try to give back in the same way it gives to us
1: yeah yeah I think that's a great a great way to put it to give to give back a little bit to the earth for what it gives us (laughs) for sure
0: yeah so um I guess I just want to ask if you have like any last comments or anything else that you'd like to add and just thanks so much for coming onto the podcast. Um, I really appreciate it and I'm sure our listeners will love to hear about your story and your project.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much, Holly. It's been a great conversation and I, uh, you know, I don't think there's anything else to add. This has been a really wide ranging, uh, yet in-depth conversation and I think you know a lot of good a lot of good points to bring home so but yeah I think you know you said it you said it really well uh just you know give back to the earth a little bit for you know the great place it is to live really I think and
0: yeah try and to I keep d- it that way I just want to say thanks as well for being so inspiring and helping young people to like have a positive outlook on the future as well. It's great to see projects like yours out there. So yeah.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: That's all right. All right. Well, <laughs> thanks so much. And yeah, if people want to look you up, maybe just give your Instagram and your website just so people can have like a look. And we'll link it as well in the podcast, guys. We'll put some links to Christian. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Cool. Yeah. Well, you can see what I'm doing at crisscross Shaw is my personal Instagram feed. I'm not super active on there, but sharing tidbits here and there and uh, everything else is at Plastic Tides and www.plastictides.org on the web. And you can learn about the gym program, how to become a youth leader or a mentor or to donate to support our efforts. So we are uh, just kicking off our end of the year fundraiser. So definitely appreciate any support that comes in in that nature. And uh, yeah, everyone, just get out there and and give back a little bit in whatever way. Uh, yeah,
0: feels good yeah. to you. Awesome! Thanks so much again, and thanks for listening, guys.